this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think another critical component uh, of communicating with patients is to start where they are, meet them where they are. So meaning taking that time in the beginning to say, tell me about what you understand about what's going on. Because not only is it going to convey to them that you're interested and you're invested in where they are, it's going to give you so much more information about how to approach them with that information rather than just hitting all those check marks, you know, of, oh, I got to get through A, B, C, and D with them. So I think making sure and investing that time up front and finding out where they are, what they know, and what they understand is really important. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT. We have a very special guest today. We have Dr. Melanie Celestio. She is a cardiologist here to discuss a topic that is important to all physicians having difficult conversations. She's an associate professor of the Department of Internal Medicine and Cardiology and the Associate Dean of Student Affairs at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. She has a passion for medical education and promoting humanity in medicine. Her work includes teaching communication skills that encompass meaningful care discussions with patients, as well as difficult conversations with colleagues. And she is here to share what she's learned. Welcome to the show, Mel. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Gopi. I can't believe we're finally doing this. Yes. <laughs> Should we tell our guests our 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 contact point was with uh was is with my brother? <laughs> oh, we oh can we? This I, is I fantastic. Think so. He's gonna hate it. I'm sure if he he's gonna be cringing right now. But um, my my brother Monal, my brother Monal and Melanie, uh, you guys were residents together at uh, San Antonio. Yes, I don't quite right. re- remember the years um, of when this was happening. We won't talk about the years <laughs> because that will date me, my friend. <laughs> But but is can we just agree that maybe part of our goal, you and me, is to make him cringe? So this is actually wonderful, right? Like this is actually part of our yeah, goal. Absolutely, yeah. and that his nickname is Uncle Momo. But uh, <laughs> yes, and I, and I will refer children. to him as Momo. Yes, yes, absolutely. exactly. No, all of my children call him Momo. Absolutely, <laughs> and he really is the uh, we call him the Godfather, right? Because he's brought you, he brought you and I together, mm-hmm. and then also the Pillar friends as well. So it's. Yeah. it's Oh, it's a wonderful relationship. Well, and he's the godfather of my children uh, and potentially many others out there because because he's such a good person. He's such a he great is. person. Um, he is. Totally agreed. Yeah. So, all right. So that was our shout out to Uncle Momo. But all right. So let's let's get into it. Um, you know, we're going to yeah. talk about how to have difficult conversations today. But before we uh, dig into that, uh, can you first just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your practice? Absolutely. Absolutely. Gopi, thanks. So I'm an adult cardiologist, as you mentioned, um, and in that realm, I see patients in clinic, I attend on CCU, and then I also read echoes and do TEEs. But I also like to define myself more than a cardiologist. I'm also the wife of the better half, as you know, the better half, which is Eric Staley, a physician. And I also am the mom of three kids uh, who are crazy and nuts and have a very wide range of ages. So ages. So all the way from five to 16. So I think that all of those things define me. And I just I'm a, someone who's in love with medicine. I just absolutely love the practice of medicine, the profession of medicine. So that's who I am. And so in your practice, what has been the experience you've had with some of the difficult conversations? Give, it, give me some examples. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I've run the whole gamut, my friend. And, and, and I want to tell you that even though I'm talking about this as if I'm, quote unquote, an expert, which I am a, a work in progress, I think, as I will fully admit to anyone, I've run the full gamut. So when I was a resident with your brother, Uncle Momo, 
Um, I certainly was no expert whatsoever. I, I wanted to impart my knowledge onto my patients in any way, shape, or form. And, and of course, I, I did feel like I was an expert. I probably felt more like I was an expert as an intern than I do now to this day. I think I'm more humble, uh, 100% more humble um, at the current stage of my career than I was for sure as an intern. Um, so I've run the gamut. I've run the gamut of having terrible conversations where I was potentially overconfident and, and really felt like I was, uh, you know, imparting my knowledge onto patients. I've had, you know, difficult conversations where, you know, maybe the patients weren't in a place where they were ready to hear some of the information that I was wanting to impart. There's definitely been times of language barriers. There's been difficult conversations because of family dynamics. And then there's also just been difficult conversations because, you know, where I was, who I was from a cultural state, uh, from implicit biases, from all different things that, that create barriers between human beings, right? I've had conversations where it just landed just in a heap on the floor, did not go anywhere because I didn't recognize all those barriers between me and that fellow human being next to me. So I've had the full gamut, and you name it, I've had it not only with patients, but also with my colleagues as well. And really, I'm coming from a place of humility because I've I've made all the mistakes in the past, 100%. Yeah, I like how you're able to sort of break down what makes conversation difficult by the reasons behind it of like, uh, you know, the language barrier, the patients ready to hear the news, um, implicit bias, because it's so easy as a clinician. My first thought was, you know, am I giving a cancer diagnosis, a terminal diagnosis? Right. And so, you know, in my mind, I still break it up as something concrete like that. And yet the factors behind it, there's so many, so much other, other things at stake. Um, oh, huge. Yeah. Absolutely. Because the topic is just one layer, right? Like the topic in and of itself, anything, any topic that we have in medicine is already hard because we're talking about their mortality. You know, we're talking about their way of life and, and any diagnosis is going to, going to affect people's way of life. So the topic just in general, baseline, where you're, where you're starting from is hard, but then you bring in different backgrounds, different cultures, different biases, different expectations. And also um, something that we can't forget as well is we have different goals, Yeah. right? So as we're coming into it as a physician, we have a goal of, okay, I need to get them from point A to point B, but the patient themselves have their own goals as well, which is they need to understand what pain I'm feeling and what I really want to accomplish here. So we may be trying to get to, this is the diagnosis that I have like heart failure. And they may be trying to tell me, I didn't come in for heart failure. I came in because my shoulder hurt. Yeah. Um, and so I think also there's all of those factors that play into these hard conversations for sure. So just to kind of set the stage, um, when you know you have to give difficult news or, you know, perhaps there's an unexpected finding or, you know, complication or, you know, something that you know you have to give, do you, is there, how do you set the stage? Like, how do you set it up for yourself and the sure. patient? That's such a great question. You know, setting the stage is not just the physical place or even the timing, although those are very important. So number one, setting the stage of making sure that I have enough time to have the conversation. I like to call it pulling up the chair to the bedside, right? Making sure that I have as limited distractions uh, as possible. And then, and then also, you know, making sure that this is the right time for the patient, you know, that they're not... <laughs> you know, in the midst of, oh, they're about to go to a procedure and they're incredibly nervous about that. So they're completely distracted, right, from anything that I'm going to say. Can the patient transport come back in 10 minutes? Ex Can y'all wait? Right? I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous. Right, they're chariot awaits, yeah. right? They're chariot yeah. awaits and, and they're about to be whisked off somewhere and then and then you're trying to give them, you know, some kind of hard news. Right. But I think the other factors that are really incredibly important in terms of setting the stages, 
I've got to make sure that I'm in the right frame of mind. So, you know, we all as physicians or providers, whatever it is, you know, role that you play um, in medicine, we have so much going on in our lives and our minds at the same time. So we're thinking about the other, you know, 10 patients that we're taking care of, or maybe we're worried about our kids at home because, you know, there's something going on with our children. So one of the things that I, I always want to be aware of is where I am emotionally and mentally. One of the wonderful things that my father taught me growing up, he, as I mentioned, was a physician. He always said, you know, Melanie, when you take care of patients, they're putting their faith in you. They're putting their lives, their well-being in your hands. And that is not a minor thing. And he said, you have to make sure that you're okay walking into that room. Because if you're not, you're not giving 100% and they deserve 100%. They're sick and suffering in front of us. So I think that that's something that I always carry with me is that I need to make sure that I'm in the right frame of mind. And if I'm not in the right frame of mind, if I'm in a place where, you know, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I can tell that, then I need to take a step back and figure out how do I get into a better frame of mind? Or am I the right person to even have that conversation, right? So I think that there's that as well as, again, timing, having enough time, making sure that the patient is in a right frame of mind as well, which you don't always have control over. And then also pulling up that chair. You don't want to be standing at the doorway where it looks like you're about to bolt, yeah. you know, and and patients are wise. They they know what you're feeling and what you're experiencing and they'll read right through you. Um, so making sure that you can pull up that chair and dedicate that time, because as we all know, if we were in their shoes, that's what we would want. Yeah. And I think that's critically important as well as making sure that we put ourselves in their shoes. What would what would we expect? What would we want from our provider? Yeah. And, you know, you, I, I like the time, the patient's time and your time, as well as the frame of mind that you're in. Is it ever okay to show your emotions or your frustrations? Um, for example, oh, yeah. you know, we're all, it, it, sometimes it's a lot of hurry up and wait. And it might be something oh. so simple, you know, just getting that scan, right? Or just going down to whatever or getting whatever procedure. And yet here we are three hours behind and you just, there's a lot of things you can't control, right? There's just a lot going on, a lot of gears. Is it is it ever Absolutely. okay to also show how you feel when the situation is difficult for you as well? Because a difficult situation isn't, like you said, it's not only affecting the patient, you're part of the care Absolutely. team and it affects all of us, maybe differently, but. Absolutely. Wow. That's such a great question, Gopi. Yes and no. Um, of course, right? That I'm not going to give you a straightforward answer, but yes and no. What I mean by that is, is that I am try to be uh, as myself and as transparent with patients as possible, because I think that one of the critical points of being a great physician or a great provider is being as authentic as you can be. I think when you show up to a patient who's sick and suffering, and again, they're putting their trust in us, when we're, you know, trying to cover ourselves up with a sheen and, and put walls around us. Again, I think patients are wise. They, they know that we are covering something up and, and many times they'll be able to sense it. It won't come up maybe in the instant, but they'll later on say, you know what, they, they weren't telling me the full truth. So yes and no, what I mean by that is, is that there are times where I'm in a rush and that, that I'm, I'm frustrated. I have to take a deep breath. I have to control that in so much that I can. But if there are times where I'm talking to them, I will be transparent with them and say, you know, I, I wish that I could do this for you and I'm also frustrated as well that this is the situation that we're in. For example, you know, in cardiology, we're always telling them to, like you said, hurry up and wait. Your catheterization is going to happen um, when it's going to happen. And there is no perfect timing. I can't tell you when it's going to happen. And and I sympathize with them. I empathize with them. They, their family is waiting. They want to know when to take off of work to be there. 
And the truth of the matter is, is I have no control over that. So I, I will tell them that I, I may be as equally frustrated with them uh, that I have no control over that. However, I think the importance here in terms of showing emotion and showing frustration is that I never want to get to the point where they have to comfort me. I always want to make sure that it's not so much that I'm going to lose my head, that I'm that I'm going to lose their trust, lose their respect. And also when it comes to emotions such as giving hard news, things that are really hurting me as well because I care about them, I may show my sadness. I may show that the emotions that that are coming out, but I'll never do it to the point where they're going to have to take care of me in the moment. Right. Right. So so I think that that's that's the critical piece for me is is that absolutely I want to be as authentic as I can with them. But at the same time, I never want them to have to comfort yeah, me. It's about them. It's about the patient. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's about all how about they're them. feeling. Absolutely. Tell me about in terms of setting the stage. So in PEDS, I always have to talk to a, a legal guardian, a parent. Right. I have sure. family around. In adult medicine, how do you know uh, when to involve other people, uh, family members, friends, other than the patient in terms of difficult conversations? Okay, first I have to acknowledge the fact that all of you in pediatrics, God bless y'all, because you don't have just one patient, right? I mean, this is- is, It's the family. It's the family. It's the family. Honestly, so Gopi, I look at you and I think, you superhero, right there, (laughs) because you not only are taking care of these kids, but you're also navigating- the, the communication that goes not only to the, the, the patient themselves, but also to the parents. It's, it's unbelievable. So, um, major kudos to anyone in pediatrics, by the way. Um, when it comes to, um, adult medicine, at least for me, I mean, first and foremost, um, the clear cut things like, you know, do they have competence? Are they able to actually make decisions? And if they're not, then clearly we've got to, got to get the family involved. We've got to get next of kin involved or, or a medical power of attorney, but also, if you know your patients, which I always strongly recommend to every learner that I encounter that you do, you know, this is part of being a great physician, not that not that I am a great physician, but always striving to be, is knowing your patients. And if you know your patients well enough, you'll, you'll know how important it is to involve those people around them. And when it is important to them and when they need their input, then absolutely, we need to bring them into the conversation. That's not always the most convenient for for physicians and providers, of course. You know, it does take a little bit of extra time, but I would argue, again, that's what differentiates the great physicians, you know, from the ones that are more dictated by time and uh, by how to get as many procedures done as possible. You know, I think that's what differentiates the great ones. Yeah, I think the extra time up front, whether it's getting everybody involved, getting, you know, the three-way call or in person, whatever to get it all Absolutely. done right up front will save you time and get everybody on the same page on the back Absolutely. end of it. Um, and can I also yeah. just add one more thing to that that I think is so critically important is that we talk a lot, we talk a lot at patients. Yeah. You know what I mean? We 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 come in with a, you know, again, that we need to move the needle from point A to point B. And so we're gonna come in, we're gonna, we're gonna we're going to um consent them, but in our consent, we're gonna we have to get through the checklist, right? Of yeah. all the things that we have to to get through. I think another critical component uh of communicating with patients is to start where they are, meet them where they are. So meaning taking that time in the beginning to say, tell me about what you understand about what's going on. Because not only is it going to convey to them that you're interested and you're invested in where they are, it's going to give you so much more information about how to approach them with that information rather than just hitting all those check marks, you know, of, oh, I got to get through A, B, C, and D with them. So I think making sure and investing that time up front and finding out where they are, what they know, and what they understand is really important. 
I think that's a great segue into um, like, you know, I was going to ask you, are there certain questions you always ask or phrases that you have ready to sort of kind of bridge things? Or if you're starting to sense mis- not a miscommunication, but just being not quite on the same page as the patient, do you have what, what do you do if you have to shift gears or it's not going in the direction that you're hoping it to go? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, such a great question could be. I mean, as I as I just mentioned, I, I usually, if not always, start conversations by tell me what you know. You know, tell me, tell me where you are and tell me what you understand so that I can meet them where they are. And then it's so important to read social cues. It's so important to to be in tune with your patient. And what you're talking about, or at least what what I believe you're talking about, is you know, when you notice that the patient's getting frustrated, sad, overwhelmed, any of those emotions that are starting to come out. I always try to pause and not go from that point A to point B that I'm trying to get to, but say, you know, I sense there may be something going on. Tell me, tell me what you're thinking. I really try to hone in as to what emotion they're feeling and why. I also am very cautious, and I would really advise other providers to try not to do this as well. I'm very cautious not to say, I know what you're thinking, or I know what you may be thinking, or I know what you may be feeling. I absolutely try to avoid those those words because we don't know what they're thinking or feeling. You know, unless you've experienced it yourself, unless you've had cancer yourself, or unless you've um, had coronary disease yourself, you don't know what they're feeling and thinking. And and to to say things like that can really put a barrier between you and the patient. Right? Immediately put a barrier between you and the patient because the first thing that can come out of their mouths is you have no idea what I'm going through. And even if you have had cancer or you have had coronary disease. I would argue that now is not the time to bring that up, right? It's not about you. It's about the patient. So I avoid things like, I know what you may be feeling, or I know what you may be thinking. And again, ask them the questions. I think coming from a place of curiosity is the key. Coming from a place of humility and curiosity. Because if you come from that place, then you can't go wrong. Yeah. So you're putting the patient in, in, at the forefront, and, and that's what we should always be doing. Um, so come from a place of curiosity come from a place of humility. And then the other things too that um, I try to use in my language is I try to avoid the word, but, okay, we could, we could go down all kinds of funny, you know, <laughs> bunny holes with, <laughs> but okay, you, you know what I'm talking about. Gopi, this is not just for difficult conversations with patients, but this is really difficult conversations with any of us. Right. So you, we know each other's spouses, right? This comes with even those difficult conversations yeah. with our spouses, right? You, you try to be nice and, and kind of like uh, take the edge off, right, of something you're going to say. And you say, you're such a wonderful human being, but, right? <laughs> That's that sandwich technique, right? Positive, exactly. negative, positive. Does that, does that not work? <laughs> right. Well, you, you know what I've come to find is, is that that but, that word but negates everything you just said. So you can say all kinds of wonderful things. You could say like, you know, like Aaron, right? Like yeah. Aaron, you're such a wonderful human being. You're so smart. You're such a great interventional radiologist. But and then and then you and then you put in your zinger, right? Right, right? So so I try to stay away from the word but, and I try to use connecting words like and because and or and yet makes makes it that both things can be true. It's not negating everything you just said. It's both <laughs> things can be true. So so Aaron, or you know, in my case with my wonderful husband Eric, my better half, I can say Eric, you you are so ridiculously smart. You're a wonderful orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. And, and, but, but the same thing goes for patients, same thing goes for colleagues, which is to say that you are clearly very well versed in your own clinical care. And what I hope to offer you 
is that uh, there's another perspective here. And this is the perspective I love to offer you. And see, that to me is coming from a place of curiosity and humility. And if they're not ready for it, they're not ready for mm. it. You know, and 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 that's not on you. That's probably the hardest part as providers, as physicians, as as those individuals that want to convey our knowledge to others. The hardest part is also having the humility to say, they may not be there yet, and that's not on us, mm. and being able to step away as well. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more specific, um, you know, when there is a patient complication or a, uh, something that is unexpected, sure. is it okay to say, I'm sorry, or I don't know? How do you feel about those phrases? I feel like and some, yeah. there are people like, oh, you shouldn't, you know, if you say sorry, you're admitting to something. I mean, is Absolutely. that like, tell me, tell me about those phrases. Yeah, no, such a good question. I, I do think that there is this general what is the word that I'm looking for? There's there's a general unease, shall I say, unease with saying the words, I'm sorry, because it implies that you are owning the complication, you're owning the problem, or you're owning the disease. I mean, we all know that we did not cause these diseases, right? We did, we all know that we didn't cause these issues. From my perspective, I can only offer you my perspective. I, I can't say what's right or wrong. And, and to be very frank, I don't think that there that it is that simple, that there's a right or wrong answer in this situation. To be perfectly frank, I do use the term or the words, I'm sorry, but I use them. Oh, did you hear how I just said, but, but, <laughs> but I use them. I use them. I use them carefully. And, and the reason I say that is, is that, uh, I use them as I truly feel them. And again, this comes from that place of authenticity. What I mean by that is, is that as I'm looking at my fellow human being and as they're suffering, as they're going through something hard, I do, I feel terrible that they are going through this. And I think we we all can get to that place of feeling terrible that they're going through this. And so I am sorry that they're feeling this. Is it my fault? Absolutely not. As Do I know it's not my fault? Absolutely. And I still feel sorry that they're going through this. So I will say the words, I'm sorry. I do think you do have to exercise caution, though, because there are instances where some may see, feel or think that when you're apologizing that you're taking ownership for that. Just like in every one of these circumstances, you've got to read the room. If you're in a situation where you're with a patient who's having a really hard time coming to grips with what they're going through or having a hard time, you know, coming to that knowledge of, yes, things are going not well and maybe going in a direction that I have no control over, they may respond with anger. They may respond with frustration and they may be looking for someone to blame. And we can recognize those instances and in those situations, I may be much more cautious in my wording so that they don't feel like I am taking ownership for what they're going through. But there are also situations where patients are just suffering, they're hurting, and they're they're right in front of you. And in those humane moments and in those moments of pain and suffering, I absolutely feel comfortable saying, I'm so sorry that you're going through this, right? Mm -hmm. But you have to read the room and you have to know who you're dealing with and, and what emotions they're feeling at the moment and and then make the decision whether it's the right time to say that or not. Yeah. I love uh, read the room because I feel like that's a life skill in any situation, oh, right? Right. Like anything, anything. Always working on it, my friend, right? Always <laughs> yeah. working on it. Yeah. Not perfect here yeah. by any stretch of the yeah, imagination. Absolutely. So, okay. I'm um, going into uh, nonverbal cues. So like body yes. language. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, the importance of eye contact or, you know, whatnot. Tell me, tell me about that. I think this is becoming more and more important, especially in the world that we're living in, in medicine. And what I mean by that is, is 
you and I both know that uh, the EMR, the electronic medical record, has become all-consuming. So it's very easy for us to treat the what uh, I believe Abraham Verghese, Dr. Verghese, a, a wonderful human being and a very human physician. Amazing writer. Amazing writer. Amazing writer. Amazing. Oh, yeah. We could just have a whole podcast right on that. Oh, gosh. But um, he calls it the eye patient. I've heard that he calls this the eye patient. And I, I truly believe that this is the case. Uh, and I try to convey this to, to learners I work with as well. We're not treating that patient in the EMR, right, in the electronic medical record. And it's very easy to walk into a room in the limited time frame that we have and and get right on that computer in the room and then be typing away while we're also trying to have a serious conversation. So when it comes to body language, I think that there are several things. One is, is that, you know, you need to sit down and give time and space to that patient the same way you would want it to be done for you if you were in that situation. And to me, that's again, pulling up that chair, not being, t- not typing on the computer um, and me- having eye contact with them. That body language is incredibly important because even though that may be the 10th conversation that we may be having with that, that patient that day, um, that 10th conversation about the, the cardiac cath or, you know, the procedure or, or whatnot or the chest pain, it is that person's first time to have that conversation with you. And I think we have to always remember that. So meeting them in the eye, spending that time at the bedside, really cr- incredibly important. When it comes to other body language, like holding their hand or touching their arm, I think Again, bring it back to reading the room. I have patients who I'm clearly very close to. I've, I've known them for years and I feel very comfortable putting my hand on their arm because I do think that the power of touch in medicine is incredibly powerful, right? However, there may be patients you don't know that well and you're not really sure if you should bridge that gap and, and put your hand on their arm or, or hold their hand. And in those circumstances, I think it's incredibly important that we feel okay with asking them. I would really like to put my hand on your arm because this is a hard conversation. Is that okay? I would really like to take your hand right now or, you know, is it okay that I do that? Yeah. Because we are living in a different world these days, right? Go be where touch can be conveyed and construed in so many different ways. And we have to be careful, but knowing our patients, knowing what they're comfortable with and showing our compassion in different ways. It doesn't have to be by holding their arm or holding their hand. There are going to be patients that will be incredibly uncomfortable with that. You and I both know that we run the full gamut as well from Uncle Momo, who we would not touch, to <laughs> our best friends, right? Like, Kopi, I, I would put my arm around you in a, in a heartbeat, right? Like 100%. Right. Yeah, but right? definitely don't do that to Momo. <laughs> don't do that to Momo. We, like we that. know that. I mean, we, 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 know, we know each other that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I, would, I would venture to say it is our responsibility as providers and as physicians to get to know our patients, to know where their barriers and boundaries are their healthy boundaries are, and to respect those boundaries and also show that compassion in whatever way that they can receive it. So this might sound like a silly question, Mel, but what do you do when a patient or family member starts crying in the middle of the conversation? Oh, how not do you, a silly question How at do you all. handle that? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I, number one, realize in my head, it means that they heard me because usually if they're crying, it's because we're talking about something so hard and difficult, something that's really impactful on their lives. And if they're crying, that means, yeah, it hit home. Uh, they're hearing what I'm saying. That's number one. Number two is, is that I always take a pause because if they start, if they're starting to cry, they're processing. They're, they're processing something so horrifically hard that again, you know, I, they oftentimes think that we don't take as seriously as we should. And if they're processing the, 
10 minutes more of conversation or of what I'm about to inform them about is not going to land. Not only is it not going to land, it's not going to absorb. So I've got to take a pause there. And, and is it a pause such that I have to say, I can only imagine, that's another phrase actually that I like, by the way, because I, I'm never going to say, I, I know what you're feeling, but I'll say, I can only imagine what you're going through. And I feel that this may be a good time to take a break to let y'all process for a little bit. Because it's just like when you've probably heard these conversations, right? The minute you say cancer, they're never going to hear the next 20 minutes after after you say the word cancer. So taking a pause and taking a break is, is really incredibly important. And the other thing is, is um, having that tissue box ready yeah. at the helm just to show that you care enough to recognize that they're they're having those tears and that it's worthy of giving them something to to manage that those tears because oftentimes i've i've what i've seen other providers do is barrel through it because it's uncomfortable yeah right i think there's there's a discomfort that naturally occurs with all of us because these are hard emotions and if you barrel through it wow you're losing a really big opportunity to earn a patient's trust and also a big opportunity to show them compassion, you know? Yeah, I was going to ask, I, I think the Kleenex box is actually a really important detail because the worst is when you're looking Huge. around, looking in cabinets. I mean, it's, you know, and and it's just like, what am I doing? And how am I, am I you know, what am I doing? But right. how do you ever tell or stop by the nurse's station, talk to the patient's nurse or um, like the clinic nurse, like, hey, oh, 100%. This is, you know, because I feel like that feedback in terms of what the the nurse or other healthcare team member has seen, spent a lot more time than we have in terms oh. of knowing what might make this conversation, what their concerns might be, how to set it up better. Do you, how often do you do that? Oh, Gopi, gorgeous! I just am so glad you brought this up. I try to always do this, and and I I'm embarrassed to admit that probably don't do this enough. If I'm on inpatient service, my the, when I say my nurses, they're not mine. I don't own them, but the nurses I work with, wow, they're incredible, right? And if at all possible, I want to have a conversation with with the nurse before I even go into the room. They know 100% more than I do because they, just like you said, they've been there. They know who the players are. They know what the patient's going through and they know where, you know, if the patient is at a place where they're ready to receive that information or not. And wow, they are our biggest allies and team members, let's be frank. And, and I think this is really important to convey to every single medical learner out there. You cannot practice medicine alone. This is not a single solitary sport. And in fact, those nurses are way more at the bedside and way more with the patient than you are. So yes, before I even go into the room, talking to the nurse is absolutely critical. Talking to the techs around there, talking to the medical assistants, and then afterwards, it, this is probably one of my greatest joys is getting to go talk to the nurses and tell them, hey, listen, this, this is what just went down. This is what they may need because nothing unifies a team more than showing that compassion to that patient. And wow, what a privilege that is to be on that team with those incredible nurses. I mean, they honestly do so much more in terms of, you know, taking care of their pain at the bedside than we ever do at the EMR or at that computer that's like, you know, even on a different floor. So they are critically important. We have to have conversations with them and we have to recognize what a meaningful role they play yeah, I, in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I feel like I, I kind of learned that more probably 
in fellowship doing peds, um, whether it was the neonatal ICU, the, you know, mm-hmm. PICU. I mean, you're not touching that patient or going into that room without letting the nurse know, A, because if the, if the you know, a 28-week preview that's now, you know, five weeks starts crying and I barely breathe oh, yeah. in there, you know, that was kind of where I first learned, like, wait a second. <laughs> I, need, oh, no, I need to make gotta... sure I start talking to people. And then I think after that, just making that of a habit for those reasons made me realize their help and input is invaluable um, to oh, making that so invaluable. Yeah, to making that right. our partnership better and also making that patient overall better and the better experience oh, for us. And on the outpatient side, you know, whether it's my clinic nurse who's answering the phone calls or, you know, maybe it's my speech pathologist um, yeah. that did the swallow study. And we got to figure out how to tell the family either we got to thicken foods or, hey, we we can't we're going to, we may have to be NPO for, you know, we got to figure out what, what's so our, true. our game plan here. And so um, I think those conversations are important. Oh, I love that. So on the adult side, you know, one of the things that I have seen time and time again, and it's heartbreaking. I don't, I don't mean that as a pun. I, I say terms like heartbreaking, even though I'm a cardiologist, and I really don't mean <laughs> that in terms of being a pun, but it does come out that way. Okay. So heartbreaking is that, you know, the nurses see a side of the patients that we don't. So for example, what I see a lot of is I see a lot of tough, patients. And what I call them is hard candy shells. And the only reason I'm able to recognize that, or maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons I'm able to recognize that is because I have a pretty hard candy shell myself, as well as, you know, my kids. And and, and I have a lot of friends that, that are this way as well. And sometimes when we're at the bedside, just, you know, intermittently, that's all we see is that hard candy shell of the toughness of like, I can take this. And then in the quiet moments where the nurse is usually the one that's there or the medical assistant is there, they actually open up and say, I'm really scared. And and if you're able to find out that information from those individuals, how much more effective can you be as a communicator, right? And so again, I just want to hammer that point home uh, of everything you just said. You, you said it perfectly, which is these, these people, they're our partners, you know, in, in all of this. We can't do it without them. Tell me a little bit about language barriers, um, having to use oh. translation services, whether it's an in-person uh, translator to the OD, you know, video chat to... Oh, yeah. Tell me how that, how to get, because that's just another challenge that's making a difficult situation oh, even goodness. more difficult. What Do you yes. have any uh, advice on that? I do have some advice, although I will tell you that I'm not, I, I'm certainly not perfect at this. I'm still always struggling to get better. First and foremost, you know, it's 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 not just language barriers, right? It's also those cultural barriers as well. But language barriers certainly are there and they are just devastating oftentimes to uh, the way that we can give care and, and giving compassionate care. It can be one of the biggest barriers. One thing I would say as a piece of advice that I try to tell learners is if you walk away from a conversation and you don't feel good about it because you don't feel like it was a good conversation, you don't feel like you were able to convey, you need to come back to that that bedside. Or if it's the clinic, then you need to make a phone call later because we are so time pressed, right? We have so much time pressure in our daily lives that oftentimes we do feel like we did not spend enough time and we and maybe the patient didn't fully understand. That's one thing is, is if you didn't feel good about it walking away, Take that time later to go back and have another conversation or call that patient up with a translator. And the second thing that I also like to do is show humility from the onset, right? How scary would it be for any one of us to be in a, you know, in a situation where we had to get healthcare and we did not speak the language? How frightening is that? 
So one of the things that I very intentionally do is when I walk into, so I'm just going to use the example of Spanish, right? Because that's that's probably the the language that comes up the most that I don't fully uh, know or, or can communicate with. I will walk in there and I know enough to be dangerous, Scopy. I mean, as you can imagine, <laughs> right? Like I was in San Antonio for 12 years. You would think I would know more, but I don't. But I know enough to be dangerous. So, but what I do is, is that I know enough to introduce myself and to apologize profusely for not speaking their language. So I am putting them in in the middle. I'm putting them as the center of the attention here, not me, right? It's not about my time. They are the ones that are sick. And I say, you know, I'm going to embarrass myself here. So, hola, como estas? Me llamo Melanie Solistio. And then I I, I even try to use the, the accent too, right? And I say, you know, I say I'm a cardiologist and I say, and then I say, lo sientos, like, I do not know Spanish. I am so sorry. And I, and I even, and then I try to make them laugh, right? <laughs> I try to make them comfortable. So I say, I say, poquito, 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 espanol. <laughs> like I, I say it so many times to the point where I, I don't think that I've ever been met without someone laughing. Yeah. And then, and then I look to the translator or to the Star Trek. I call it the Star Trek, you know, <laughs> the translating, like, you know, language little thing that they bring in. I, I turn to that and I say, mucho, mucho, mucho espanol. Es, es muy bien, right? Like, and so I always try to make them comfortable and, and make them laugh. And then I, 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 it's, it's also bringing that humor to me, like making fun of myself. Yeah. Because I want to make them comfortable. And I also want them not to feel like they're burdening me, but that it is, it is my bad. I, I'm sorry that I don't speak Spanish because I wish beyond all wishes that I that I could speak Spanish and I could understand you better. Yeah. And then I would also say the last piece of advice is if you are in a situation where this is a really, really hard conversation, then you need to go find one of your colleagues that does speak Spanish in a way that they can convey the very subtle meanings and the, and, and the compassion that you need to convey. So it, it, maybe it's not that translator that's through the hospital or, or, you know, through your institution. It may be a colleague that you know can really convey the emotion you're trying to convey, which is that you really care about them your compassion about them. And um, this is a hard topic because yeah. sometimes it does get lost in translation, right? Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, you know, I speak Spanish and for some things I would talk to my patients. I would always ask them what they preferred. And, you mm-hmm. know, and I, there would be times where I preferred the interpreter because it was too complicated sure. and I wanted to make sure they knew exactly what was going on. So I think there are different levels of comfort uh, ability. And I think sure. that you hit the nail on the head, having somebody that can convey the nuances that Absolutely. with or without, you know, with the translator gets lost in translation is huge because I've, I've heard things, you know, I, I can, yes. you know, and I'm like, wait a second, that's not exactly. And so, you know, I, I think that uh, that's very important. Um, tell me about the one thing I find um, that can be difficult for me is, you know, then I start speaking to the translator. Like I have to oh. remind myself, I need to be looking at the patient. So how can we, when we're talking with the translator, like not, excuse me, when we're talking, I guess, I don't know what the right wording is, yes, through the yes. translator with our patients, like how do we still stay with our patients? Oh, absolutely. Man, such a, Kobe, you're so good. I, I need to carry you around with me at all times <laughs> because you really just provoke the best. Oh, you're so good. You're so good. So I will tell you, I, I always try to face the patient. This is where, you know, when you were talking about body language and, and cues, I mean, I'm always trying to face my patient. And I'm always trying to look at them when I'm speaking. So even though the the interpreter or the translator is over here and they're talking, I, I try very hard not to be talking to them. I try very hard to be looking at my patient so that I can convey the emotion of it, even if it's going to be translated by the translator. Yeah. And 
You bring up something else that that I'm sorry, I'm gonna veer off here a little bit if you'll if you'll just afford me this. I apologize ahead of time. Is that there's something else that I think we as physicians need to be aware of, which is in these difficult conversations, especially when we do have an interpreter or a translator, that there is an extra person in the room now, right? And there's an extra person that we've got to that we're we're I hate to say it because we're not their boss, but we're in charge of, you know, we're responsible for them. Why do I say that? Because I've had so many situations where I've had these difficult conversations with translators and I walk out of the room with a translator and they're in tears. And it is my responsibility to be there for them because this is not their job. They didn't choose to be a physician, right? They didn't choose to have this difficult conversation. And I find it my responsibility as with these difficult conversations, just as with a code, right? It's it's the same level as having a code and being responsible for everyone that runs that code blue is that when I leave that room, I needed to be debrief with them and I need to make sure that they're okay. And I, you know, and, and that takes more time. Again, a lot of these wonderful things that we get to do, I like to put it in that framework that we get to do as a physician, they take up time and, and that's hard for us in a time pressure situation, which we're always in. But I would say, again, this is what distinguishes this beautiful, beautiful profession of medicine is that it's the humanity and the science, yeah. right? So I, I, I would offer that up as well, which is don't forget about your interpreters. Do you ever, um, like I used to sometimes, I don't know if prep is the right word, but I would kind of explain before going into the room what we're going to talk about more so just to make sure in terms of whether it was difficult anatomy or the concept was not straightforward, uh, we were on the same yes. page. And I think that prep was more, maybe less for like, whether it's a difficult emotional conversation, but more of a, you know, just to we be on the same page. Do you ever do that ahead of time with something that might be emotionally difficult? Like, hey, we're about to go in here. It, it's going to get pretty serious. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And not just with the interpreter. I mean, to be honest, you know, I, I work at a academic institution. So Oftentimes, our teams are quite big, um, and and you have to be cognizant of that as well as is what kind of dynamic that creates when you're yeah. walking into a room because you don't want to be like you and your entourage, right? Yeah. And and like be like staring down at the patient. So you always want to get on their level. I always prep the team. I always prep whoever I'm with if I can, unless it's a, a hugely urgent situation where we have to move fast. Um, I always prep the team because yeah, the, everyone is starting from a different starting place, right? And with their different backgrounds, and so you know. For people to take away the, the the best that they can or the most that they can from these situations and learn from them, especially our medical learners, prepping is actually the right way to go, I feel like. Yeah. you know. So they can also look out for the social cues I'm looking out for. And then with the interpreters, absolutely. Although I have to say that usually the time is of the essence sometimes with those interpreters. But, but if I can prep them, I will, yeah. for sure. So um, just switching gears just a little bit, um, I wanted sure. to talk a little bit about um, having difficult conversations, not necessarily with patients now, but let's say colleagues, peers, yes. quote, people that are, you know, whether it's residents, medical students that are, quote, lower in the chain, if you will, whether it's in academics mm -hmm. or how do you apply some of the some of these skills in other settings with other individuals? Yes. Yes. I mean, this goes into... A lot of psychology, actually, which is uh, fascinating. This is the fascinating and the humane part of, of medicine, I think. But I'm going to kind of reverse back to what I said about making sure that I'm okay. So anytime that I'm going to engage in a difficult conversation, so maybe I should even set the stage for when are you going to have a difficult conversation with a colleague? A lot of that centers around, at least in my experience, around things like implicit biases, microaggressions, macroaggressions. 
difficult conversations, those are definitely going to occur when you're getting into these topics, right? I think that there's several different things that I use both with patients as well as for colleagues. One is, is that I need to make sure that I'm in an okay place. If I'm in a place of anger, defensiveness, wanting to withdraw, which is all of those really fight or flight feelings that we feel in those really hard times, then that is absolutely not the time for me to go into a conversation like this. Or maybe I'm not the right person. So I think making sure that my emotions are in check. It's not to say that you shouldn't have emotions. It just means that you should have your emotions in check before you go in. And if you can't, you need to think, am I the right person to have this conversation? The second thing that I like to do in preparation um, with patients as well as colleagues is finding this place of um, compassionate assumption. This is what I call compassionate assumption. It's it's called so many different things in, in different realms. But the compassionate assumption is, is I, Gopi, you know me. I, I am an Enneagram one. I am, I can be very self-righteous and I'm a perfectionist, right? <laughs> and I can get on my righteous high horse in, in like two, not even 2.2 seconds. Please. I would say 0. 0.00002 milliseconds. <laughs> I can get on my righteous self, you know, right, righteous high horse. And, um, and I, I will tell you that a way to, to avoid getting on that righteous high horse and getting into that place of anger is to practice compassion assumption. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, is I need to really come from a place of this person is doing the best that they can, or this person had really justifiable reasons for doing what they did or being what they are or acting in the way they did. Perfect example for a patient is, man, when I was, gosh, when I was an intern, I used to get so frustrated with patients who didn't take their medications. I mean, so frustrated. I'm embarrassed by how frustrated I would get because I would take sometimes hours at the bedside before they were discharged just to make sure and go through all of their med list. And then when they came back and they didn't take their meds, I thought, oh, you know, like basically they're saying that everything I did and everything I was doing was worthless when in fact it had nothing to do with me. The compassion assumption part is the part that says it has nothing to do with my counseling. It has to do with there's 20 million other reasons why they can't take their medications. They can't afford them. You know, or usually that's the case is they can't afford them, but maybe it's interfering with something else that's going on with them. Like they've got a kid at home to take care of and that there's no way they can spend six hours waiting in line to get their medications, right? So that's the compassion assumption part. On the colleagues part, I think whenever you're talking about a difficult conversation, especially with microaggressions, macroaggressions, and implicit bias, I think realizing that they perhaps are coming from a place of they're doing their best, they did not intend to cause harm. My best example that I use time and time again is, uh, and I love this because I think this uniformly goes across uh, every single one of us, is when you're stuck in traffic and you get cut off by someone right in traffic and someone's cutting you off. And and I don't know about you, Gopi, but I have a few choice words when that happens. <laughs> I usually have a few choice words and a few choice thoughts that go through my head. And one of the things that that I, I've had to ask myself as I've come to this realization about compassion assumption is, is that man, even especially as a medical professional, have I ever considered that maybe they are rushing because they've just been called by someone in the hospital and they've been told that their loved one is dying and they need to get to the hospital as soon as possible to be there in their last moments? Or do they have? Did they just get a phone call that said, oh, your significant other is in labor. You need to get to the hospital. That is the compassion assumption piece that I'm always trying to practice. I'm not, I, yeah, I, I'm not perfect at it. I, I'm always working at it, but if we can find that place of compassion assumption, I would argue that we could 
have so much better conversations with our colleagues and not come um, into it with anger and frustration and and really get into these conversations that go south really quick um, and really amount to no progress whatsoever because we're just being defensive. Yeah. You know, and there's, you know, with colleagues, it's there's a little bit more room for other ways in which to communicate verbal, yes. email, text. I mean, all that adds a, a different layer, I think, of um, how and when uh, to address something, how far you're willing to discuss oh. something. It's it's really um, difficult sometimes. It's complex, it, it, right? It, it has it's so many layers of complexity. It's the hierarchical structure, especially if you're in an academic institution. It's the topic that's super hard. And then it's the fact that every single one of us are accomplished individuals and we do not want to be seen as a failure. Right. Right. And right. we don't want to be seen as ma- having made a mistake. We are in a completely perfectionistic environment. Yeah. And you're right. Is the question of am I the person, am I the right person? I think that sometimes people receive feedback better from mm-hmm. others as well. That That is something to kind oh, of think huge. about, too. And that might be some of the, you know, thinking compassionately about the person that you're wanting to oh. give the feedback to. And that's kind of hard to that's swallow, huge. too, because you're like. You know, you, I, I think that I'm the person that should be telling you this because I saw this and I know what you need. Absolutely. Like, you know, oh, my goodness. Absolutely. And it, I mean, you've really got to, like, take yourself out of the emotion yeah. and out of the situation. Right. You you almost you have to go from a 10,000 foot view and you have to say, OK, number one, you know, who does this person listen to? Who does this person admire? And then also, you know, what could be the um, defense mechanisms or the defense react defensive reactions right. that could occur? How can we also align our goals? I think the two that, that I like to emphasize are, number one, we all have a mutual goal of best patient care. And number two, we all have a mutual goal of best education for our trainees. So if we can always align ourselves, because sometimes when we have these conversations, we there's a battle battle line that's drawn, right? And then we're, we're arguing across this battle line. But what we want to do is remind ourselves we're always on the same team. Yeah, It's always about the patient and it's always about teaching our medical learners to take the best care of patients. So that actually, um, I'm glad you brought the trainees back up because you'd mentioned, you know, especially in an academic center or maybe, you know, the practice has a large team. How do you um, know if it's okay to take in that many people? And um, how do you, you know what I mean? For, uh, as a patient, if there is, for me, if there is a complication or something that's difficult for me to hear, I may not oh. necessarily want 10 people in there or even five. Five is not an uncommon number when it comes to a rounding team. So how do you, right. and, and yet in medical education, these are the skills that are not, they're difficult to teach per se. You can't read right. this in a book. You know, right. my uh, first year foundations class didn't, you know what I mean? I didn't get all this in the three right. months at that time. And also I had no experience with my patients at that point as a first year medical student. So what do you do? How do we, I guess, how do you know how many people to take in a room? That's a little bit more of a concrete, maybe not, I don't know. Sure. And then how do we, how do you teach this? How do you um, expose your trainees, whether it's medical students, residents, fellows, junior faculty, senior faculty, you know, how do you continue to Uh, learn about this as a a healthcare provider? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think such great questions, Gopi. One is when it comes to how many to take in the room, there's no, again, I hate to say this, but there's no right or wrong answer. It's it's highly contingent on the patient, highly contingent on the situation. And in these circumstances, I think the best thing to do is ask the patient, right? I think it's always best to ask the patient because it recognizes what they want um, because they're the ones that are hurting. They're the ones that are going through this. 
Um, so, so when in doubt, ask the patient. Um, secondly, if you are going to bring in, uh, uh, you know, more than one person, I would say get down to eye level. You know, I think one of the things that I absolutely can't stand is when we're standing above the patient while they're laying there, you know, essentially in their pajamas, right, in a hospital gown. They're so vulnerable in that circumstance, and we're we're talking down to them, which which I always think creates a very odd dynamic that's that's not compassionate. So taking the time to bring in chairs um, and making sure that we get to eye level is huge. And I and I'll tell the team you need to step back, you need to kind of sit to the side and and not be hovering and, and making them feel very self conscious. Hopefully, hopefully not. Um, so that's that's like the the kind of more concrete answer in terms of teaching. Gobi, this is the million dollar question. And, and, and I will tell you that there, there's an easy answer. And then I want to bring in the complications of it. The easiest answer is, is that when it comes to these part conversations, the best thing that we could do is in, in my humble opinion is to simulate. You know, simulation is the key. I think simulation is absolutely key because you can really suspend reality and put learners in situations where they are having these conversations and see if they can, you know, appropriately, appropriately use social cues. Can they, appropriately interact with a patient without crossing, you know, boundaries that that are that are unhealthy. And I, so I think simulation is the key not only to show, you know, you can actually show learners these skills in simulation as well as you can show them videos, etc. and then you can have them actually do these uh same scenarios, you can videotape them and you can give them feedback. So the simple answer is simulation. Let me tell you the hard answer though, which is any of these skills, as you just said, you know, like these are hard skills to teach and it's hard to write them down in a book. It's much easier to say that the BUN and the creatinine are range from here to here and this is abnormal. So because these are hard things to teach, part of the reason why they're hard things to teach is because they're hard to measure. And this is where I feel like the crisis in medical education is. The crisis in medical education is, is that Compassionate care, humane care is absolutely critical in this day and age. I mean, we, we saw what happened with COVID-19. And yet, see how I use that? And yet, <laughs> we are struggling. And the reason why we're struggling is because this takes time, this takes effort. And also, these are not, let's say, metrics necessarily that bring in a lot of cash flow into the hospitals, right? Into health systems, into academic institutions. It's also not typically... It's not typically an area that brings a lot of national attention and recognition, which which is obviously something that that many strive for. And so we are really struggling, I believe, in this arena in medicine. And, and I would say that we're almost to a point of being at a crisis level. One is, is that med- medical educators who really strongly believe in this, you know, we are under a time pressure at all times. Number two is, is that when you take the time to teach these, it's hard to measure and it's hard to write papers about this. That's also an issue. If you can't write papers about this and you can't publish, then you can't fulfill the metrics that's typically recognized, you know, in an academic setting. And then thirdly, I would say that there is in general, and and forgive me, my colleagues, and don't come after me, anyone who's listening (laughs) to this, but forgive me, my colleagues, but I would say that in general, there is a culture of, you know, the soft skills and the hard skills, right? And the hard skills are, you know, doing procedures and, you know, interpreting data and crunching that data and then and being able to publish that data in 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 really high impact factor journals. What I've often been told is, is that I practice the soft skills. And I always laugh about that, Gopi, because, you know, even though we call it the soft skills, they're the hardest things yeah. to measure. 
And not only that, they're the hardest things to measure, they're the hardest things to teach. And yet I believe that they are the most important. Personally, that is where I'm coming from. I think they're the most important because without this humanity, without this compassionate care, we're never gonna be able to communicate with our patients and get them to even receive our care. We saw this in COVID-19. So I think we're at a crisis right now. And I think if we don't start focusing very intentionally on teaching compassionate care, teaching humane care, and emphasizing humanity in medicine, our science will go nowhere because no one will be ready to receive it. That's a great point, Mel. So for our listeners or, you know, where where did you start reading more about this? What do you like to read? How does somebody who is, hey, I had this, whether it's an incident, a recent difficult conversation to, hey, this is important for me and I'm interested in this. What what kinds of, um, what do you recommend in terms of gaining more uh, knowledge or education about this? And I know you've written a lot about this as well. Where can people find your writing to reflect on your experience too? Oh, thanks for asking, Gopi. I be, I think one thing is is that I have to bring up, right, is my best friend. She just doesn't know it yet, which is Brene Brown. <laughs> I always love to, I joke about that. I joke about that all the time because I always just say, she's, Brene Brown's my best friend. She just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> she's you amazing. Know, I, I, right? She's amazing. Mm-hmm. And she's amazing. And, and I truly believe that one of the things that we have to do going forward is that we've got to take some of not some, I would say probably all of the skill sets that Brene Brown puts out there, we need to start applying it to medicine. And this this evolves around understanding our shame triggers, um, our perfectionism, and then being able to communicate effectively, drawing healthy boundaries, and then using this compassion assumption. So number one, read any Brene Brown book out there. If you throw a dart, you'll land on a good one. So uh, read any Brene she Brown book out there. She also has Netflix specials, uh, a Netflix special oh, too. Right. So if you'd rather Absolutely. listen or watch, she's a great speaker. Right. And I would also argue that there, that her podcast, not to take away from Backtable, because oh, no, Backtable is amazing. No, no, but we her, like her, her podcast, right? Yeah. Her podcast, Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead are incredible. And I, I recommend these to my medical learners all the time. I, I, I've learned so much from them and I listen to them over and over again, to be honest. And then um, another person that I highly admire is an, an organizational psychologist um, who wrote a book, Think Again. His name is Adam Grant. Incredible, incredible human being and person. And I say this, of course, because he's another one of my best friends who I've never met yet. Um, I just, I, I just joke around, but, but I do, I love his work because he makes you, uh, you know, kind of realize that there are other ways to approach things. Um, and so that think again is, is it will really blow up the way that we, um, think about medicine and maybe we need to think about it a different way. And again, the, the way that I would stress upon everyone is, is in, in the way of humanity and compassionate care. In terms of my work, and I appreciate you saying saying this, Gopi, I think I, I would love to put out there, I, I do have an article about crucial conversations in the era of COVID-19 and circulation. Probably the work that summarizes our conversation about difficult conversations the best is my grand rounds that I just gave at, at Mayo um, for their diversity and inclusion series um, grand rounds. And I'm happy to give you the link to that, as well as uh, stay tuned because we are taking all that I presented at that Grand Rounds, and we have a paper coming out shortly as soon as we can find a good home for it. So, so that'll hopefully be coming out pretty soon. But I, I, I'm just, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to put this out there. Uh, I think it's so important. It's, it's not about me. It's, it's, it's about the messaging of humanity uh, in medicine and compassionate care. Well, thank you so much, Mel. I think that this is going to be well received across all our shows. Um, there's so many pearls and I love reconnecting. I just wanted to shout out, um, we'd mentioned Abraham Verghese. 
Oh, He's an amazing yes. writer for any of our listeners. My Own Country, talk about health inequity, uh, yes. The Tennis Partner, his own memoir and uh, relationship with a medical student, as well as uh, his fiction, uh, Cutting for Stone, all amazing and really huge. Yeah, amazing. For any medical learners out there, these are all great books. Of course, quote your spare time or not I, this would actually probably in all your free time exactly but uh, it might actually make your t- difficult times even better uh reading a few pages right of these books. oh can i offer one more thing Absolutely. too that that i that i love i u- actually use it to teach I'll, I'll, i do like a book club on ccu sometimes it's the first chapter of complications by atul gawande mm-hmm. so another wonderful yeah. author right that i love 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 like being mortal um complications better etc the first chapter of complications is called education of a knife And man, if you want to just blow up your whole thought process of medical education, read that chapter because it'll humble you. It'll humble you. It'll cut you off the knees in the best way possible. And and I love it. So I I highly recommend that to every single medical learner out there or anybody practicing medicine. It's it's just it's a wonderful read. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mel. Thank you, Kopi. Wrap. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Arvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.